0: A quick hello, and we're good to go. Welcome to the show, Chris Savage. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. What a welcome. Yeah, you said you were really good at feigning surprise. That was really good. And <laughs> my, my big worry is that when Anton puts that sign up at the beginning, I can't see the name anymore, so I've got to memorize it.
1: Just before I start singing. yeah, it's hard work. It's hard work. Chris Savage is a hard one. You know, you never see it coming.
0: No, 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 not coming at all. In fact, talking of which, we're going to start with the brand serp. I mean, I love starting with the brand serps. I look at my guests on um, on Google, and your your knowledge panel. I mean, if we put up that first screen, is astonishing. You are put alongside. Ran Fishkin, who I know, which is fine, but Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, wow, wow. I mean, yeah, that that's esteemed company, if I may say so. That's in <laughs> New York City. Uh, so Chris Savage is obviously somebody Google has understood phenomenally well. I think you're probably in the right company because you're a bit of a a bit of an entrepreneur, aren't you?
1: You could say that. You could say that. Yes. Um, I know. I never. I never thought I'd describe myself as an entrepreneur, but uh, I. uh, I think after after fourteen years of building a business and like the I just I love building company. Well, building companies, building this company. um, I love solving hard problems. I I love waking up and actually not knowing what I'm going to do that day, which is like the freedom. I think of of building a company lets you do that.
0: Oh, I love that. I love waking up and not knowing what I'm going to do that day. Brilliant stuff. Uh, one thing is that Google hasn't understood that you're entrepreneurs. It's obviously, put you in this group, but you should really have a subtitle there. Chris Savage, entrepreneur would be. You're right. It should better. say that.
1: What the hell's wrong, Google? Why are, why are you acting like this?
0: it hasn't understood because you haven't explained it properly. And underneath, (laughs) you can actually claim your knowledge panel, um, which is something I would advise you do, which gives you some control. It doesn't actually give you control of your subtitle, but it does give you some control over your profiles and some other information about you. So tip number one. The second screen, though, is I kind of thought, okay, that's New York City. Let's move to Tampa Florida, which mm-hmm. is further down south. Yeah, if I that's right.
1: Geography, right for the US. <laughs>
0: <laughs> which was the discussion just before we came on how bad <laughs> my geography of the US is. Uh, but underneath you can see there's another Christopher Savage uh, who's in that area. So Google is actually saying, I'm not sure which one you mean. I think you probably mean this Chris Savage, but I'm not going to put a description because I need the space to propose this other Christopher Savage who is geographically potentially more interesting to the person or more, probabilistically more the intention of the person. And if we move to the next one, as we move further away, we move to, if I remember rightly, Leeds, which is where I was born, all of a sudden, it isn't going all out and showing everything about the Chris Savage we know and love. It's showing a tiny piece of information because it's obviously not sure that that is something that's relevant for somebody in Leeds looking up uh, Chris Savage. And if we go on to the last one, as we move even further away, we're in Sydney, Australia, and it's not even you anymore. It's not. And that's an incredible, I mean, we'll end on that. And it isn't saying, oh, you're not important and not famous or whatever it might be. It's simply saying that Google is being very geo-sensitive To a very common name, and it's saying actually in Australia, you aren't potentially or probabilistically the most important or the most probable, excuse me, not important, that's not true, uh, person that somebody might be looking for. There is an Australian, Australian Chris Savage, (laughs) that somebody is more probably looking for. Um, So I I didn't do that to make you look foolish. I did that to demonstrate that even somebody who's in the realms and the uh, sphere of somebody Like Richard Branson suddenly disappears in Australia because you're very much based in the US.
1: That's yeah. Well, it's funny if you told me when I started, or even you know, three years ago, five years ago, that I would be the dominant search in all of the most of these places, I would be shocked. So it's, I mean, it's not like something I'm trying to do, um, but it is, it's still shocking. And I hope Christopher. Evor Savage in Australia is doing well, and um, I assume <laughs> that uh, he's up to many important things. So, thanks, thank you for for enlightening me to his existence.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, it, it's actually not at all thanks to me. It's all it's all down to Google, and I've been astonished how good Google is at guessing or looking at what is going to be the most relevant in any individual area. Um, and the example of Leeds is right down to town level. It's looking at Leeds and saying, you know, in Leeds, there must be multiple Chris Savages from which people would want to choose. Uh, so it's, it's, it's pretty unsure. Anyway, that's my Serp, brand surf story. Lovely to meet you, Chris. You founded Wistia, and you just told me that you claimed it back.
1: Back at, we started in 2006, and the name was not Wistia then. Um, it was something else called Tropist, um, a site for um, that was going to be a portfolio website for filmmakers and artists, and then it evolved into Wistia. And I, I think what? we started calling it Wistia in two, late 2007 or so. Um, and yeah, been been growing and uh, and doing Wistia since then.
0: Brilliant stuff. And you said, in fact, so sorry, I mean, I, now you mentioned that I'm suddenly terribly curious. You had Wistia, you had investment, and then you borrowed to buy it back. Is that
1: correct? Yeah. So we raised angel money. Um, we raised a total of $1.4 million in the early days of Wistia. And I mean, it was a different time of, of raising angel funding, but that was in 2008 and 2010. Um, and then we went on our merry way. and We were able to actually scale the business without raising any additional capital. Okay. Um, so we got the company profitable and scaling. And then in 2017, we had the opportunity to sell the company. And we're close to selling it. But my co-founder and I, as we were, we realized that the reason we were considering selling the company, um, even though we'd been doing really well, was because we weren't happy anymore. And okay. it wasn't fun to, um, it wasn't as fun to run the business. And we had actually been running the business at a loss, trying to throw everything we had at growth. And it wasn't really working. Sorry, were you making money? And then you said, let's throw lots oh, of money yeah. at it. Oh, yeah. We were making we got you about $10 million in revenue, um, US, obviously, uh, mm-hmm. with $3 million in profit. And we got the advice from everyone I talked to what are you guys doing? Like, you're growing so quickly and you are profitable. Like, if you weren't profitable, you could be growing revenue faster. And companies are valued based on revenue growth. So you're making wow. a big mistake. And literally, 99% of the people I talked to, entrepreneurs, investors, other founders, people who had sold their companies before, whatever, all said the same thing. So at some point, my co-founder and I decided we were wrong and we changed how we were running the business and we threw the throttle down. Like we we put, we we turned it to 11 and we started hiring like crazy and taking on other projects and and we started running the business um, at a loss. And fortunately, we'd saved up money from being profitable for a couple of years. So we were able to afford to do this. But what happened is we started to go away from a lot of like long-term things we were doing and trusting our instincts to when you, when you're losing, and these are real numbers, $200,000 in one month trying to grow. If your plan doesn't work perfectly in the next month, the revenue doesn't go up as much as you hope. Instead of losing another 200,000, you know, you lose 250 or whatever it is oh, right. and the time to live starts changing. And so it was in this moment where we've been doing that for 18 months or so. And we had, lost our ability to be as creative as we used to be. And we also yeah, lost- exactly.
0: doesn't, that, doesn't that make something like 5 or $6 million of loss? Yeah. If, I mean, if I calculate the 200000 That's exactly right. And, yep. and moves over, you're looking at, yeah.
1: Yeah. And so we were playing with this like this game of eating into the cash reserves, trying to decide how much time we had to live, hmm. thinking that if we uncovered some massive revenue growth thing, we could we would raise money to scale it. But of course, we didn't uncover something. The business continued on, except it wasn't as fun. And we actually had a lot of trouble doing many of the things before that just felt like the right things to do. Like when we were profitable, it was easy to do things just to go above and beyond and take care of the team or to take care of customers or be really friendly, unbelievably friendly and support and really generous. And all those things started to go away because it was like, well, if we don't do this, we're gonna run out of money and six months instead of, right. or eight months instead of six months. And it, it got very, very stressful. It was actually in that moment, we had three different companies try to acquire us. And my co-founder and I had always said no to all of those types of conversations that past. But this time we decided to say like, let's have these conversations. And we were sitting there with an offer to sell the business, talking about what would we do if we sold. And-
0: Ooh, I, uh, Excuse me, sorry. I had a conversation exactly like this with my partner. And he said, what would you do with a million- Yeah, euros. And my, I I thought about it for quite a long time. Said, "Oh, I would buy myself a new truck." Okay, (laughs) and he laughed, but just like you did. And and what it came down to, and what I learned that day is, I don't actually have ambition to spend lots of money. Mm -hmm. So there's no real point in getting that immense sum of money. And I, I mean, obviously, it would be lovely to be rich. But uh, sorry, you can carry on with your story. No,
1: yeah, but basically, what we realized is, if we sold the business, yeah, we'd have a lot of money. But what we loved doing was like growing the company when it was really creative and when it was really fun and when we could invest in brand and when we could do all these things that really brought us joy, but also seemed to work. And we had lost our ability to do those things. And so we we literally said, okay, we would build a brand similar to the brand we built at Wistia. We knew the people we'd hire. We actually knew that there was other problems we wanted to, to solve in the video space. And so we we're going through this whole exercise, realizing that like, We sold the company in two years. We tried to rebuild Wistia. And when we had that click, it was like, well, that seems like almost cowardly to sell the business instead of fixing our own problems. Like, we can fix these problems that we have. And wouldn't we prefer to fix the problems ourselves? Yes, that sounded really fun and that sounded really exciting. But that also meant saying no to an acquisition offer, which is obviously what our angels want. Like, our angel, people don't invest angel money hoping that you won't sell, they hope you're going to sell, like that's the off ramp. And so um, when we realized we weren't going to sell, we decided we had to do something about it. And that led us to to raising debt.
0: Which, Sorry, which but then the question is, did you actually solve those problems once you decided not to sell?
1: Well, yeah. So what we did is we, we raised $17.3 million in debt and did a, a leveraged buyback. So it was like we sold the business for our investors, and actually for employees as well, who we'd given options to because we thought we were going to sell the business. We gave them options. So they all got to get liquidity and it allowed uh, Brendan and I, my co-founder to take total control of the company because the share classes all changed and everyone ended up with the same share class as us. So even if you didn't sell, it was very clear, like Chris and Brendan control everything. Um, And then it worked really well. So um, we went, we swung EBITDA the year we did the buyback. We realized midway through the year that we had this, we were going to make this change. And so we had negative EBITDA of about half a million that year. And then the year after, we had positive EBITDA of six million. Um, but what also happened is, you know, we raised debt when we were not profitable, so the debt was really expensive. So we were able to refinance the debt, and then that led us to this path of like, oh, okay, this is working. Um, and we started to invest more in all those things we wanted to invest in, and that worked. Like revenue growth actually went up, even though we became very profitable. So it's very counterintuitive to the general advice and worked out really well for us. Um, And I think it's an example of just like, sometimes people think that like, to taking a big risk means taking a big financial risk, but sometimes you can't take the big risks unless the the financials are in a good spot. And that's something that, that's a story that's not told as much and it's it's a part of the lesson for us in all of this. Well, I do like the the fact that you're talking about actually keep hold of your baby,
0: um, work on, the, the, what you want to work on with your baby rather than kind of go for the big bucks immediately. I mean, Wistia, I, I don't know the company incredibly well, obviously, video platform. Um, do, do you feel uh, immense attachment to it?
1: No. I mean, yeah, I think, I, I think immense attachment to... A lot of the ideas and things we've learned. um, And, you know, again, I've done this so much longer than I ever expected to do this, right? Like, you know, we, it's funny to say no to the acquisition deal because we thought we were going to sell the company in six months when we started. That was the plan. So I didn't think I was going to feel any attachment to it. And then over time, I learned that being very long term focused and having fun along the way is part of the secret sauce to doing big things is just keeping at it, right? So how do you, people talk about like trying to find your passion um, or do something that you're passionate about. And what we discovered is like the way we were working is what we were really passionate about. And by doing that, that allowed us to continue at some of these really hard big problems and allowed everything to compound.
0: Obviously kind of this is a completely rubbish question simply because there is no real answer, but do you think that the secret source you just mentioned, which is basically your passion and your love and the way that you built it and the way you work on it, mm-hmm. if you had sold and somebody else had taken a control, would it then have died? Would it have died in me? No, would it have died as a company because it doesn't? Oh uh, no,
1: I don't think the anymore. company would have died. Um I think. I think that we, if anything, like continue to under monetize it, <laughs> like you okay. know, um, and that was like I think what made it attractive as an acquisition. Target is like many of the things we've done are very generous, and so mm. people look at that and they're like, well, we could make much more money with Wistia if it was in someone else's hands. So I don't think the company itself would die, and i and I think that it depends obviously on like there's some acquisitions where companies flourish, right? because like they suddenly have the umbrella and the freedom. Mm. Um, to, to grow in a better way, usually that has to mean like the DNA of the, the acquirer and the acquiree are like incredibly tightly matched. I don't think that would have happened with us, um, but I think the company would have grown if we had sold right. it. I mean, I, I cannot, I'm sorry, I'm actually really interested in this
0: because I did a Buwa, Buwan Koala was my Blue Dog Yellow Koala cartoon, and we had five million visits a month for Mm -hmm. a kid's site in 2007. And one of the reasons it all kind of fell apart is my partner was looking at it, my business partner was looking at it from that point of view saying, we're under monetizing this. Mm -hmm. And I was saying, I just want to keep doing what I'm doing and share it with as many people as possible. And Mm -hmm. he actually ended up taking it over and it's gone completely down the pan because the the fact that he wanted to over monetize it or to monetize it to its true value put people off. Do you think that would be a problem with Wistia?
1: Yeah. I think that would have been a problem. Yes. I, I think, I think the, you know, there's, I, yes, I, I think that would have been it's, a problem. I think, with, I think
0: ch- me, sorry, to, to brand affinity, I mean, basically what you're saying is that if the brand changes its personality and I'm doing some inverted commas for anybody who's listening and not watching, yeah. uh, if Wistia lost its personality, people, the clients would jump shit.
1: I think a lot. Case- yes, I think that's right. I, and I think that that's, yeah. And I mean, brand affinity, obviously the idea of like measuring the connection of the personality to your brand and trying to focus on that. Um, and I think, you know, one of the reasons we talk a lot about it is like we learned over the years that sometimes things happened that didn't make any sense logically, mm-hmm. except that they were a brand impact. Um, the earliest example for me, the thing that like opened my eyes to this when we were very small, uh, we were we were making progress and we had six people. We had raised our second angel around. We were starting, customers were really starting to come in. We we saw a path to profitability, but there was only six of us. And we didn't have a team page really. We had a, up until then on the website, it was just like a list of the early, myself, my co-founder and the other two early employees right. made to look like we were a big company because we we're B2B. So we're like, oh, we got to look big. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, If you looked at this team page, you would think, this doesn't look big. This looks like a joke, but (laughs) I, I, that was unclear to me when we made it, but that was the idea is try to look professional. And I was like, this is stupid. We have these two other people on the team. They want to tell their parents. They want to tell their friends. They want to tell their, their coworkers that they're like proud to work at this company. And we thought a little way to do that was to be, make a team page. So we made a team page, six of us on it, standing in front of a whiteboard scribbles. We literally didn't even clean the whiteboard. It just felt like a businessy thing to do. We took three photos of everybody and one straight-faced and then two silly. And my co-founder, Brendan, thought it would be fun to make it so if you went to that webpage and you typed dance, D-A-N-C-E, it would randomly switch between the, like, silly photos and the serious one for each person. And, no, it would play music. Okay. and he, literally, he did this because it was someone's birthday on the team. And it was, like, a gift. And he didn't think anyone was going to see it. Well, it went on Twitter and it went viral. I, it, sound, it, it
0: sounds like a, a gift, if I might yeah, say. Yeah, that. yeah, it was like, like a gift.
1: That, that was like a jip, yeah. joke of the day. I'll shut up. Yep. Sorry. And it went viral. People sharing this thing, and we got a bunch of traffic to the team page. Mm-hmm. And then guess what? We had a two week trial, and two weeks later, a ton of new customers. And I looked at this, and I was like, "How? How did this happen? How did this possibly happen? That this has nothing to do with being a video marketing platform. It's just who we are. It's just a silly little thing." Except people liked it. They connected with it. They discovered what our product was because they cared, and then they thought, "Oh, this actually solves a problem," and they purchased. And it was this brand. It was this showing of this brand connection. And it was like it was like a light bulb went off. Like, did you know that you could have a personality and it can connect with people? Mm-hmm. And then it just over the years, oh, we we learned again and again and again that we could compound that and make it bigger, and then we all make emotional decisions that we rationalize. And when you look at the world that way, it becomes much easier to figure out like, um, how important brand is and why you should invest in.
0: Well, which actually brings me to the question, I mean, how important brand is, is is a, a kind of statement that, that I, I mean, does it really mean very much? I mean, what is brand? I mean, you you just told that story. I had a client and one of their employees said, we're gonna create this amazing 404 page. And we're gonna communicate through this 404 page and mm-hmm. get loads of press and loads of visits. But they were faking it. Yeah. It was a big brand pretending to be cool and funny. Yeah. Uh, is is brand affinity
1: fakeable? I don't think so. I mean, I, I think to your point, like if people can sniff out a fake and uh, and and they like to make fun of crappy things of big brands pretending to be small, I th- I think that a lot of this is really it's it's first asking yourself what conversations do you have the right to enter? Right. And okay. then when you have the, when you are honest with yourself about the conversations you have the right to enter, you can look at your brand values and your statements and things you put out to the world. And say, how can we uniquely participate in this? And I think when you put those things together, you can, we see big brands that do innovative things all the time. Um, in fact, I feel like a lot of the the B two C brands in particular who have have been incredibly lasting have been done many innovative things over the years and continue to do so. Um, but yeah, I think faking it and not going in and not taking a risk is where, where people run into trouble.
0: Right. And, and, well, that then leads me on to the question of like, kind of the, the idea of presenting your brand without really thinking it through and just being yourself. Is that a solution? I mean, that appears to be what you did.
1: I think for some people, yes, it's a solution. Um, and I think it is, you know, <laughs> it's funny that going back to the brand serve of me and you have these like basically celebrity entrepreneurs, right? Um, and, um, I'm, I'm not going to categorize myself as one of those, but like Bezos, right? Everyone, everyone has an idea of how he operates Mm -hmm. and they apply that idea to everything that comes out of Amazon. And we, we guess at what they're going to do next, but next based on his personality. And I think we've, we, for a long time have had strong personalities in business that are kind of like celebrity entrepreneurs, Mm -hmm. celebrity business leaders that everyone, like Steve Jobs is the classic example. Now Tim Cook, the operator, oh, how is he going to change the pricing on me this time to blah, 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 And like cut the cost. Everyone's looking at the gross margins, but they didn't care about that when Jobs was in charge. They just cared about how innovative the thing was. Um, But I think that that has always been possible. And then now with the way we can connect so directly with each other, and there's no filter because you can just subscribe to someone's Twitter account or Instagram or or whatever, I do think that there is more opportunity for like the cult of personality, if you want to call it that, or the the connection between a business personality and, a, and the business itself and the affinity. But I think that it's also, as there's more of it, you have to do, if that's your only strategy, you have to do more outrageous things to stand out, which I think is like, shows us a little bit, you know, where we're also seeing wildly extreme things today. I think that's partially the reason why.
0: Sure. I mean, that example of Tim Cook and uh, Steve Jobs is interesting from the fact that Steve Jobs is presumably, he was like that. So it wasn't actually an effort for him to create this cult of personality and to be the brand himself. Mm -hmm. Tim Cook is obviously less like that. Um, So the brand is now Apple and the cult of personality has disappeared. Um, And so Tim Cook's problem this is my reading of it. He needs to build
1: the cult
0: of personality, the brand affinity with Apple.
1: Yeah, I think he's trying to do it with inclusion and accessibility. That's what I feel like Apple's doing and, you know, throw privacy in there. Um, they, they're like morally right. Like that's kind of their approach. And, you know, the privacy stuff dictates everything about their business model now, right? Because everybody else they're competing with is 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 monetizing with ads. And they're saying, we're we're not going to do that for the most part. You can trust us. And that's their big bet. Um, And I think accessibility is another one that he's pushed really hard and has changed the industry, but is very, very different than um, buying a product just because it's like cool because it makes you cool. And I think Tim Cook relies more on the ads and the copy and the design and jobs Mm -hmm. relied on those things too. But I think his personality his like rebel coolness kind of like did a lot of the work for the brand itself. But, I mean, that's something you can't invent. You can't yes.
0: pretend to be when you're not. I mean, coming back to Wistia, I mean, you're, from my point of view, your profile is much lower. I mean, I've heard of Wistia, but i would never heard of Chris Savage until mm-hmm. – somebody pointed out that you were actually the, the creator, the founder of, of uh-huh. Wistia. You're taking a kind of backseat. And from what I understand, Brendan, your, your partner, even more so. Uh-huh. Uh, so it's Wistia that's the brand. And you, yes. you develop brand affinity with Wistia rather than with yourselves.
1: Yes. The, and there was a conscious decision because yeah. there was a moment when I was the only one in everything. And I felt that thing happening of it being more connected to me and, my personal Twitter and stuff. And it seemed like this is a mistake mm. because how can we scale this? Like I need to build a company. I can't spend my time doing this. and I'm not even the, I'm not the best person to do it. Mm-hmm. I'm, I, it's not like I'm trained in this. Like I figured it out. And so it was a conscious decision that we would make Wistia a, a human brand and that we, we wanted you to feel connected to the different people in the organization. So if you go to the website, you'll see actual Wistia employees in videos teaching things, explaining things in support all across everywhere we want everyone to feel approachable and uh, creative and like willing to take like um some risk and a little hip and a a bunch of different and a little weird but that that's kind of like that's the wistia personality and it shows through all these different people versus like all right we're gonna just try to make it about me or just about brandon
0: right and and from my point of view i mean taking us from from the from the outside, Wistia is a video company. Mm-hmm. Therefore, you have a lot of video. Mm-hmm. Video makes it easier to connect with people. Mm-hmm. Therefore, you already have uh, an advantage on the rest of us in that you're natively video, as it were.
1: That's right. Yeah, and I, it's and there was a, we. It's funny we were afraid to get on video at first with ourselves because That's we ironic. <laughs> I don't know. And it's very ironic because we thought people would see us and be like, whoa, I can't trust this little organization of six people, eight people. Right. Like. Of course, the opposite thing happened, which was I, I didn't understand that what we needed to do was attract the early adopters right. and the people who wanted to work with a company because right. it was six or eight people. The big company was never going to pick us, but the small ones and the scrappy ones and the startups, they, they, they were the ones who they were, themselves needed people to take a risk on them. And so yeah, that was like, it was a huge moment when we figured that out. I think it forced us to figure it out because we wanted to to use the expression, drink our own champagne. We wanted to like be the example using our own product that it forced us to do it earlier. And then it became embedded in, in the brand and the culture.
0: Right. Okay. I mean, I, 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 I personally, um, last, I, until last year had done very little video. Anton from SEMrush got me into the webinar sphere and since the beginning of 2020 I've been doing video interviews for the podcast. I found it to be both very powerful but also very time consuming. I mean from from your point of view is sorry is that not a problem it's a problem for a lot of brands is saying I want to do video to promote my brand image and get that affinity but the expense is too much, and the effort is too much. Even if even if it's cheap because we've got the tools, the, the the time and effort is immense.
1: Yes you you have to you have to believe in the power of it, or you have to have seen the power of it. Um, and I do think for a lot of people and a lot of organizations, what they end up doing is they bring people in house, or they have like a standing a contract with someone externally. And when you start to do that, the math changes because if right. you have an expert who knows what they're doing. Um, I mean, we have people on our team who, well, when we were all in person pre-pandemic and hopefully once we're, we're back after all this insanity, um, would make sometimes 500 videos a year. Like you just a gargantuan yeah. amount because everyone sees all these opportunities to do it. And as to your point, it's really hard, but it's like, hey, I'm Jason. I'm going to go do an interview with Jason today. Can can someone help me? And they're like, yep, Oop, it's set up, go. And so actually yeah. it didn't take any effort to get ready. Or we have a product launch coming out and someone's already thinking, I need to create something so that someone can lean back and learn and be entertained and discover what this this product is. I think the thing I've learned, though, is that people want it all. Like The the big shift is that the audience is actually in control. The audience wants to decide if they want to watch something, if they want to listen, or if they want to read and scan. And depending on where it is during their time of the day who's around them at that time, the way that they consume and learn, they are going to pick. And we have to remember that like everything is shifting like this. So more people than ever want video, but more people than ever want audio and more people than ever want text. And I do think that we have to, we have to, that makes it hard. But I think if you can have the internal team or the approach to, if it's yourself to do this, you do open up the opportunity to connect with people in a very different way.
0: Uh, but that leads me on to another question, which is kind of like if the audience is in control and we have lots of people telling us this is how you format a video or audio, or whatever it might be, to keep your audience, are we not ending up with, with a whole chunk of content that's formatted aimed to please an audience or aimed to please what we perceive the audience to want? Isn't that a
1: mistake? Well, it just it, it just depends if you're learning from the audience or not. I think. If you're if right. you're just always in your your ivory tower, then yes, you're it's a mis- huge mistake, which I think is the point you're making. Like if we're just trying to please the audience and guessing at what they want, it's not gonna oh. work. I think a lot of this is, you know, if anyone's investing hugely in content, if you're making a podcast, if you're making a video show, if you're doing documentaries, if you're writing books, if whatever it mm. is, if you're going to a conference store and you're not actually treating it, the content itself, like a product, you're making a mistake, right? Like you have to treat it like a, a, a product where you go and connect with the customers and say, did you like this? Did you not like this? What can I do better? What can I, what can I change for you? How can I align this with what you actually need? And I think like, listen really hard to them. Um, and when you do that, I think it's fine. You can, and it's hmm. actually, if you do that and you, and you get really good at it, you can, you can evolve very, very quickly. Um, and so it makes the whole thing feel less risky. But it is a hard thing to do. And I just one other part on that I think is really important is starting with the qualitative. Like, just ask people questions. Like, tell them to email you. Do you like this or not? Like, make them get on a call and say, Do you like this or not? And, and yes, you'll get the quantitative, it will come. But anything like this starts with first just actually hearing what people want
0: what what i found really interesting there is i mean you were talking about individual emails i mean kind of we we tend to think of knowing what your customer wants as being this immense kind of marketing questionnaire thing where we ask 100,000 people but in fact one person can tell you an awful lot
1: oh my gosh i mean you if you could see the number of mistakes i made where we were just doing the quantitative testing of things All right. and and ignored the qual, like, it's crazy. I mean, we we did so many A-B tests on our site, trying to make the onboarding better, blah, blah, blah. It's like, oh, it's not actually a statistical significance on this page. Like, it's going to take two months to get us there, whatever. And then someone had the idea, they're like, well, what if we just do live user testing? We'll get 10 people on the page. I'm like, okay, do that. Guess what? The next day, two days later, we have an answer. And it almost mm-hmm. always aligned with the quantitative answer that took months to get. And I was like, this is insane. Why are we not using this in our toolkit like we have to actually just ask people and i think it's a simple thing that so many of us forget especially when you think you're doing a good job it's easy to get lost in that idea oh i made this thing and people like it and actually not realize like what they want is changing or what they want is evolving you know
0: well another sorry another interesting point that takes that a little bit further is saying people don't necessarily uh, express what it is they truly want. We we, we misrepresent what we want. And uh, I mean, my example would be that we did this site for kids and I would get emails from parents saying, I don't understand the na- navigation. I can't find this game or that game. Yeah, And you're saying, but can your child find the game? And the yeah. answer was, yeah. And you go, well, actually, we don't care if you can find it yeah. or not because the child is the one who's looking for it. Um, yeah. And so that it's, it's not an exact replicate of what you're saying, but people... Will tend to express what they think they need or they want. And in fact, what they need or they want is actually
1: done by acting. Is that a fair comment? Yeah, I think that's right. Oh, brilliant. I think, yeah, I think you nailed it. Boom.
0: Oh, sorry. No, I, I was expecting a kind of longer reply. <laughs> no, I mean, I think, I think people
1: often put themselves in a position of, uh, it's cuz it's it, your point is like you can't just take the feedback but you have to sort through the feedback and say all right this is what everyone says they want this is where i think we're going with our product this is what i think we're doing next does that seem like it's going to not only solve the problem but like also delight or take it to the next level or whatever mm-hmm. it is and it's in that it's that it's that difference that we're constantly focused on that's where you can make remarkable stuff because if you give them exactly what they want they're not surprised you know if they give you them exactly what they what they said they wanted In some cases, that's right. In some cases, it's not. I mean, I think what we're talking about is applying just critical thought to that process and looking at that delta between your vision of where you want to go and what people say they want.
0: Absolutely, Brim. That was amazing, Chris. Thank you very much. I I really like the way that kind of wrapped up because you actually said what I was trying to say, but much better. Next week, we've got Adam Helwech. I'm not quite sure how to say his name, and he'll probably punch me next week because it isn't Helwech its hell way or hell woo. um but please do connect for that thank you once again chris that was absolutely amazing it was not the conversation we expected not the conversation we advertised but brilliant nonetheless a quick goodbye to and the show thank you chris <laughs>
1: thanks jason good to see you